Welcome to the Conversations in Complexity. My name is Ross Upshur. I'm the director of the uh, Collaboratory for Research and Innovation at Bridgepoint Active Healthcare and the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute at the Sinai Health Center. Today we are absolutely delighted to have Professor John Glasby, who's the head of the School of Social Policy at the University of Birmingham and a professor of health and social care, a unique combination. He's been in town uh, presenting at a couple of conferences, and we're so delighted that he spent uh, a few minutes of his time to come and spend with us to discuss some of the issues that he's been talking about while he's here in Canada. Welcome, John. Hi, thanks for inviting me to be here. Great. I'd like to start by asking you just a bit about your background. Tell me about your training and how you became uh, a professor of health and social care. Well, I often tell people that I'm a failed social worker turned academic. Uh, I've qualified as a, as a social worker and intended to be a practitioner. And uh, very quickly, lots of research opportunities opened up that I hadn't been expecting, uh, which I gradually started to explore and uh, found that there was a, an alternative career path there that I hadn't anticipated in advance. Um, I also used to joke that I was slightly too academic for practice and far too practical for academia. And the role that I got at the University of Birmingham in our health services management centre was just was somewhere that enabled me to indulge both sides of my my personality, and maybe not just indulge, but actually make a virtue out of trying to span those two different worlds. Mm-hmm. So, how did that transform? So, I noticed that that's that's fascinating. I completely identify with your background. So, you were head of a sort of health services unit, and then you, how did this uh, uh, amalgamation of health and social care come about? So when I was practicing, I was always really interested in how social work linked with health services and um, or indeed didn't in practice, the gaps that opened up for patients and uh, how it felt for patients with complex needs when they were being passed backwards and forwards between different professions and different different services. Uh, and I started at the university in a junior research job and, and gradually got promoted up. Uh, but effectively, I got interviewed at our health services management centre and I remember arriving to say, Uh, you need a a social worker on the staff to stay up to date with uh, the partnership agenda and uh, the emphasis that's going to be on joint working. Hmm. I don't think I really expected anyone to believe me enough to actually appoint me, um, but they did, and uh, and it turned out I was right. And so over time, I was able to develop a programme of work around joint working, partnership, collaboration. And when I became a a chair, I was able to, to choose my own title and chose, as you said in the intro, health and social care. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, when I was telling one of my clinical colleagues about how I practice medicine, they looked at me with a kind of vague contempt and said, that's not medicine, that's social work. And I thought, no, it's I call it socially precise medicine. And wow. so, uh, so you were here at a talk or a, basically a workshop symposium on patient and caregiver experience. It was focusing on this kind of odd phenomenon with a bad label that we called alternative level of care and talking also about measurement issues and in your presentation you put up a slide uh, about the 10 key things that you had learned and I love where you ended. You ended by saying there are no easy answers. How do you exist and how do you think we can move forward in a context where people think there are easy answers and actually tell them that the hard work needs to come still. Yeah, well, we've been doing um, research around older people's experience of emergency hospital admission. And it was a topic that had been looked at and talked about by uh, the media and policymakers in terms of uh, the numbers uh, and in terms of uh, people 
uh, reviewing people's case notes and deciding the extent to which they thought people needed to be in hospital or, or not. Uh, very little of the research has actually talked to older people and their families, or indeed talked to frontline staff about what was going, going on. And so our research tried to, uh, to do that, just to engage with the people who for us had the most expertise, the older people who had lived experience of the issues at stake and the staff who had that frontline practice wisdom, uh, both of which seemed to be sources of expertise that we were neglecting when we were trying to tackle a problem as, as complicated and as difficult as emergency uh, admissions or a problem like uh, mm. ALCs. Um, when you do that, you tend to make things more complex rather than simpler because real life is just messier and more complicated than we make out in our media discussions in mm-hmm. our our policy debates. So it, uh, you you do often end up with few easy answers. Um, some people find that a bit dispiriting because they're hoping there is an easy answer and if we just do it then things will get better. Um, I've always found it quite reassuring that the things we find hard, we're finding hard because they're genuinely difficult uh, and if they weren't we'd have solved them by now. Um, you know, With our National Health Service we've been trying since 1948 and we still haven't got it right. That to me suggests it's harder than we we might imagine um, if it was easy, we'd have solved it by now. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the the one thing that I noticed is that your sort of line, it was really quite heartening to me, is that your line of reasoning, your line of inquiry, and your methodology and findings uh, basically map on to our last 15 years of research and findings. And uh, we did the same thing. We tried to, we've done a lot of listening to caregivers and to patients and to providers using mostly qualitative methods uh, to try to build an evidence base. But we find that we run into a barrier in that people don't believe the results of qualitative inquiry, even though it's rich and contextual, uh, to the same degree that they would even admit uh, uh, to a survey. Have you had any thoughts about how to navigate that conundrum? Yeah, we did. A, we have exactly that, that problem as well. And um, each of us, we, we think, are kind of predisposed to, to different kinds of, of evidence, partly due to our backgrounds and our training and our, our, our personalities. Uh, so we took uh, delayed hospital discharges as, as a case study and we gave uh, five or six different types of evidence uh, to different audiences around the country, which included policymakers, voluntary organisations, patient groups, uh, medics, nurses, social workers, academics, and, and so on. Uh, and they were different types of evidence. One was a systematic review, uh, one was a randomised controlled trial, one was a more sort of observational study, uh, one was a piece of uh, professional guidance that had been produced through a sort of consensus statement by, by leading clinicians. One was um, a national survey that had gone out to caregivers about their experience of caring for people who were then discharged from hospital. And the last one, which, uh, to give you the clue, was my favourite, was a, a very journalistic piece that had been done with um, a small group of very frail elderly people who'd had experience of hospital discharge. And a voluntary organisation had supported them to come together to try and uh, write some guidance for health services about what would make a better quality discharge. And it was really practical stuff. This was in Scotland um, a while back now. Um, so if you come home late at night and it's in the winter, um, and you've been in hospital and you're elderly, could someone have come in first to turn the heating on to make sure the house is warm and the lights on before you, you come home? Just really practical steps. Um, so we gave these sources out to people and we asked them, which ones do you find the most valid and the most reliable? And which ones would you find uh, most useful if you were the health minister and you were actually responsible for doing something about it? And uh, you very quickly found that 
people had different preferences for different types mm. of information based often on their background rather than necessarily on the pros and cons of the individual source. None of them gave you the answer outright. You needed a, a mix of all the different things. But if you're actually trying to galvanise people into action and to get people's hearts and minds on board, uh, if you're working with the media, if you're working with policy, actually some of the more story-based sources that spoke to people's personal experience were were just more powerful. They, mm. they just engaged you more. They made you want to act and respond in a way that the systematic review or the randomised controlled trial, although they were great in terms of their the robustness of the approach, mm. actually they were quite dry and quite difficult to read. They didn't want you didn't want you to make you want to do anything different as a as a result. So there's something about how we engage with different audiences in different ways, with styles of evidence that they find that they find comfortable, uh, whilst also trying to challenge those preconceptions that we you know we all have. As I said, I preferred the older people's guidance but actually I've probably got more to learn from colleagues who do systematic reviews and randomised control trials and I should adopt more of that kind of thinking into my own work equally maybe they could learn something from those older people in Scotland who were saying actually you've never been discharged from hospital as an older person you don't know what it's like if you want to know how to improve it here are some ideas. Yeah I think uh, that's that's a fascinating insight and again it sort of resonates with uh, some of the other research we've been doing. So last week we had this uh, international symposium on clinical judgment, and we had people who were representing kind of the uh, evidence-based world. We had people who were in the cognitive psychiatry world. And we also had this woman, a professor from the U.S. by the name of Catherine Montgomery, who wrote a book on basically hermeneutic and narrative approaches in medical training. And it was fascinating to see how people would say, oh yes, the storytelling, it's the story that gives coherence to our understanding of the experience of illness, the experience of being cared for. Uh, How is it that we can start to actually conceive of evidence as not being hierarchically ordered according to bias resistance, but some sort of mediation between the particular uh, nature of the contextual bound story and the more general form of knowledge. And this was interestingly reflected in models of expert judgment. So the cognitive science people who are studying the distinction between experts and expert reasoners and how they put things together was they were very grounded to the particular, but drawing on the sort of broader based universal structure. So I think we've got some work to do there. So it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we, um, I think we ended up concluding that that some evidence-based movements often portray a hierarchy of evidence as if one form of evidence is automatically better than, a, than another. Whilst I think for us, it depended what you wanted to know and why as to what was a useful way of finding it out. So if I was going to take a new drug, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd want to take a drug that had been tested in a particular kind of way, um, using all of those those skills and those tools. I mean, why would you not? Equally, if I wanted to know what it felt like to be to have a mental health problem and to be forcibly admitted to a mental health hospital by the state, those tools and techniques aren't going to help you understand that issue. You've got to see it yourself. You've got to talk to people who've experienced it. You've got to talk to their families, and you've got to talk to the staff that do it that's a much better way of trying to trying to find something out so it, it depends what you want to know as to what's a good way of um, finding it out we also found that there were some approaches that um, prioritize objectivity and distance mm. uh, they claim the research is better the more distant you are from the topic that you're you're studying there are some other traditions in, in feminist research and mm. in disability research that say actually sometimes major problems arise if you're too distant from the 
the topic that you're researching because all kinds of assumptions kick in. Actually, sometimes you need to be close to the, the yeah. thing that you're researching. You really understand it in order to be able to get proper insights. Particularly something called health care. And so uh, it, it's fascinating. I mean, the whole history of objectivity and what we mean by it and how it relates to uh, healthcare is an important one. So speaking of concepts and discoveries, you mentioned something in your talk. You articulated the concept of a deep hospital. So I want to ask how you came to that. It's, it was like the best concept. It had to me as like this black hole. And any frail or older person got anywhere near the deep hospital, they're kind of sucked into that vortex, and then a whole system uh, emerges. Uh, it's kind of, kind of like the physics of care starts to kick in. Tell me how you came up with that concept. Well, it was actually a staff member in that emergency admissions research in a focus group who, who coined the phrase, and we just thought it was wonderful, just like, like you did. And their argument was, if you're trying to prevent an admission to hospital, you need to uh, take an early decision, um, ideally with uh, somebody senior who can exercise judgment in that situation. Um, you know, if you call a, a paramedic and you get close to hospital, it's hard to then stay away from the hospital. The, the ambulance will probably take you to the emergency mm. room. Once you get into the emergency room, there might be scope for somebody to divert you elsewhere, but the chances are you may end up getting admitted. And once you get admitted into the deep hospital, as this person called it, it then takes ages for you to um, to come out again. And they also argued that every time you were moved internally within the hospital, it put an extra number of days on your length of stay each time, not because of your condition, just because of the the administrative complexity of, um, of running something as difficult and uh, as multifaceted as a hospital. So that was their notion of this deep hospital, that once you got in, it was really difficult to come out again. Mm. Uh, and everyone we've spoken to just, just recognises that analogy straight away and the kind of the imagery that it, oh, that it it's creates. It's brilliant, yeah. And so you, uh, one of the things that was interesting is you talk about, uh, you made a very clear and I think compelling case for not talking about appropriateness of admission and talking about preventability. And we absolutely, when you were talking about uh, asking patients about whether there was a preventable moment, uh, we had actually done, Carrie had led a paper with Sean Tracy and I that we looked at, that's Carrie Kaluski, uh, where we looked at patients' narratives of whether their hospitalization experience could have been prevented. And I'm, as a preventive medicine specialist, I'm interested in how we actually conceptualize preventable events. And uh, talk a little bit about the preventable moments that you yeah. articulated. So, so that distinction came from older people themselves mm. who, who had a better uh, conception of prevention from our point of view than many of the health and social services. So, so the professionals when we spoke to them were, were really, um, well, first of all, they were using phrases like appropriate or inappropriate which to me has just always felt highly judgmental, mm. uh, dismissing someone's experience of services as, as somehow inappropriate. There's a, a sort of moral judgment implied yes. to start off with. But also they only really saw or knew the person on the day they walked through the door. So they'd say, well, on the, by the time I saw the person, they were really sick. They needed to be in hospital. The admission was appropriate. Um, it, was, uh, it was to do with, was the admission needed at that particular moment in time? The older people had a much longer term perspective of what their life was like, how they'd become more frail, how their health had declined, how they'd sought help, mm -hmm. what had happened, um, how the, the crisis occurred that led to them being in hospital. And they could spot a series of different times in that trajectory when something different might have been done. 
Uh, in one of our studies, it was very basic. Someone um, might have been worried about um, a piece of loose carpet in their um, on the floor in between their living room and their kitchen. And they'd been trying to get someone to come and help them sort out the carpet. And they'd asked three or four or five times over a six-month period, and nothing had happened. Uh, then one day, they were walking through to the kitchen to make a drink, tripped over this loose bit of carpet and broke their hip. Um, the system would say, well, that's an appropriate admission. The person had a broken hip. They needed to be cared for in hospital. The older person would say, well, yes, it was an appropriate admission, but we had three or four or five chances in the past when we could have done something different yes. that would have prevented the admission. And actually, wouldn't it have been better for me if that had happened? It would have saved me pain, but it would have saved me all the recuperation and the rehab. Um, also, it would have been a hell of a lot cheaper just to sort the carpet out than it would have been to call an ambulance to admit me to hospital to provide all my aftercare to give me all my rehab and my physio, actually, couldn't we sort the carpet out? So it's only a basic example, but it's a really good example of the difference between appropriateness and prevention. Naively, that had never crossed my mind, Mm. either as a practitioner or as a researcher. And it was only when the older people said it in interviews that I had that lightning moment when you thought, I get what they're saying here, and Mm. actually they're right. Um, And they were just better at it than the system because they had a longitudinal sense of what their life was like and about their contact with services over time and nobody else no matter how well trained no matter how well educated no matter how clinically expert has got that same insight yeah absolutely the other um, consideration that you brought to bear in your talk that resonated with me was when you talked about the distinct culture in the pediatric care world where it was you got a problem come if it's there's no such thing as a trivial worry we're here to help you out. Good if it's trivial, and if it's something serious, good because we've uh, sorted it out. How do we move to a similar culture change? Because I think if you look at the demographic transition, when I lecture to medical students, I say, if you don't like older adults, there's the door. Because your life, uh, you know, there's not going to be that many pediatricians, uh, nor need for them, though we have a mismatch. We've got 2,600 in Canada, 260 geriatricians. But the general sense and the ethos is in emergency rooms, in the deep hospital, in the shallow hospital, in the community <laughs> services, like, don't bug us, you know, like, whatever you, oh my God, it's one of you again. Uh, how do we affect that change? Well, I'm not sure as much the health system can do by mm. itself. I think it's a societal yeah, issue, right. and um, I'm sure it's the same here, but in, in England, we live in a very ageist mm-hmm. uh, society, so we've got different attitudes in pediatric services, as you were saying to the attitudes that we have in in older people's services, it's always worth saying, would you say the same thing of somebody who was 35? If someone says it about a 75-year-old, would we say the same thing about somebody who was was 35? And often we wouldn't because we've got inbuilt assumptions about what life should be like for somebody who's of of working, working age. So in England, our services for older people are underfunded compared to our services for people of working age, and we think that's okay somehow. Um, when we're challenged, we don't think it's okay, but we think it's sufficiently okay not to challenge it very often. Uh, when people were getting disability benefits, you would, uh, if you're under 65, you'd get uh, a benefit that uh, covered some of your care costs and that covered some of your mobility costs. If you're over 65, the benefit only covered your care costs because it was assumed that people over 65 don't need to be mobile. Mm-hmm. There's just ageism built into uh, all kinds of things and uh, and all kinds of our, our services. Uh, so I suspect the, the solution comes from um, from challenging that at more of a social and a, more of a political level than it does necessarily challenging it in our health services. It's, it's a political issue rather than a, 
a service issue. We can try not to make it any worse right. in services, but actually, you know, in one sense, we get the kind of services we deserve as a society, and I think this is a really good example of that. Yeah, I think also with the aging of the population, the young old, the 65 to 74, are going to be hopefully passionate advocates to uh, affect change. Well, and also in, in England anyway, um, often it's been um, some of those younger, older people, as it were, who've been more likely to vote, and there's been a younger generation that are less less mm. likely to vote. That's not always been the case, but often over time. So as that group of people grows and, and, and ages, is there a kind of political constituency there? Could a future government win an election in England outright and become the government, campaigning almost entirely on older people's issues? If it did something about healthcare about social care and about public transport and about pensions actually given the demographics of our electorate would that be enough to to win an out and out uh, election i think the other thing is that uh, there've been other groups in england who've been quicker to self-organize and to um, develop quite uh, user-led patient-led campaigning organizations with mm. so some really good mental health organizations groups of people with learning disabilities groups of younger disabled people uh, and um, older people have probably been slower to organise in that kind of way. Um, and it's probably a generational issue. There's a, a generation of older people in England who still remember what life was like before our welfare state, very deferential to, to people in authority, and are very grateful for the, the, the support that they, they get. Um, those are lovely human characteristics, mm. but actually there's probably a generation of older people coming through who, who will want and expect and demand something different. And it was, um, it was put to me as the generation that campaigned against Vietnam and that spawned flower power isn't going to put up with being incarcerated in the same 1960s care homes that we currently incarcerate older people. And I think there's a degree of truth there. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case in Canada where the post-Depression uh, and World War II cohort were, are, going to, are the different ones, the baby boomers. They're going to be a different kettle of fish, for sure. So before we conclude... Uh, can you tell me a little bit about where your research is going and what you're working on now and what you hope to do? Yeah, sure. So most of our research is around joint working between health and social care, um, often picking topics like emergency admissions, like uh, ALCs, as a kind of case study mm -hmm. uh, for the uh, insights it provides into partnerships, joint working, uh, coordinated care. Uh, so we're um, doing a, a series, a national evaluation at the moment of uh, community hospitals in the UK, which are often uh, rural, uh, small hospitals, uh, often providing kind of convalescent and step-down mm. care from um, bigger, more urban uh, hospitals. And the current financial context in England, a number of those are under, are under threat. And we've got some areas of the country that are deciding they need more community hospitals and, and building new ones. And um, next door areas of the country with very similar needs and demographics deciding they don't need community hospitals and closing them. There's very little evidence to actually guide either either mm. decision. Uh, so this is a study trying to look at what role do those hospitals play in the whole system? Uh, how does patient experience differ there compared to elsewhere? What's staff experience like? What kind of relationships do those places have with their communities? And then we're also bidding to do uh, quite a large national study looking at what happens to older people when care homes close. Mm. Um, either because there's been a strategic decision to change services or in a crisis if there's a, a major financial problem, a, a care scandal, or if there's a, a fire or a flood or a, you know, something like that. We've been doing quite a lot of research looking at how uh, social services can work alongside older people to 
uh, to support them when care homes close and what happens to um, those older people in terms of, of outcomes uh, in the longer term when we make those very difficult decisions about about the future of um, services. Uh, we did what we think is the largest uh, study in the UK and probably the largest in Europe um, looking at those kind of issues. But we, uh, we want to do uh, more of a national study now, tries to explore some of those emerging findings in more detail and that provides um, older people's organisations and uh, social service agencies with guidance about um, how you do that kind of work well if, if that happens in your area. Great. Well, I find your work inspiring. I'm going to read everything you've written. I've already learned a lot from you and I think we have more to learn from you. So thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know you've probably got lots of things you'd like to do while you're here in Toronto, but I'm very grateful for spending time with us in Conversations and Complexity. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and a privilege.